When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. Go and check out our amazing range of short courses and degrees. You can find all the information on crawford.anu.edu.au. I'm sure there'll be something that you might be interested in. And I'm excited to welcome Jill Shepherd as my co-host today. Hello, Jill. Hey, Julia. Good to have you here, Jill. Jill is a lecturer at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations and also an investigator on Australia's contribution to the Asian Barometer and World Value Survey Projects and the Australian Election Study. And I'd also like to welcome Dr. Roland Rich as our special guest for today. Hello, Roland. Hi, Julia. Great to have you, Roland. Roland is an assistant teaching professor at Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences and was previously executive head of the United Nations Democracy Fund. Roland, you've done extensive research on democracy, and one of the topics that you're currently interested in is voter suppression, particularly in the US. Can you tell us a bit about what voter suppression means? Well, um, unfortunately, it's become a strategy. It's become a strategy uh, of the Republican Party, largely, um, to win elections by suppressing the vote of what it considers to be its opponent. Um, and um, the calculation um, made by the Republican Party is that um, demography is working against it. And that uh, um, before too long, in, in actually in about 20 years, the United States will be a majority-minority country. That is, the majority of people will come from minorities. And uh, that bodes ill for the Republican Party's electoral chances. And so the strategy it's developed is to try to suppress the vote of uh, um, electorates and groups that it believes are more likely to vote Democratic. So we don't really have this problem in Australia. To the extent that we do, it's been Liberal Party policy in the past, in about 2005, for instance, to uh, shorten the window for younger voters to enrol to vote. So we don't really understand the the extent of the impact. Can you give us some idea? Yeah, well, Jill, first, let's just understand that this did not develop yesterday. Yep. Um, that this is not um, a, a notion that came to the U.S. as some in some smoke-filled room a couple of years ago. <laughs> this is part of American political culture. Yep. Um, there has been uh, conscious voter suppression tactics and strategies for uh, nearly 150 years in the United States. It was mainly um, in the South. It was mainly directed at African-American voters. Um, it comes from the Jim Crow era uh, after the American Civil War. And um, today's voter suppression efforts can be seen as a continuation yep. of those of those ideas. So um, that's something that um, uh, Australia doesn't really share with the US. Can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about Voting Rights Act and what that was supposed to do? Yes, uh, um, the Voting, right Act, uh, Voting Rights Act um, is one of the great pieces of legislation that LBJ um, uh, brought forward. And in fact, in that uh, wonderful um, uh, movie and play uh, called All the Way, um, the key issue is LBJ agonizing about the Voting Rights Act because he knows that if he passes this act, the Democratic Party will lose its grip on the South which had been traditionally a democratic stronghold. And of course, he was right. Okay, so how, how did that happen? Well, you know, Abraham Lincoln is, the, the Republicans are the party uh, uh, um, of Abraham Lincoln, yep. the great emancipator. Uh, um, 
because of that, the South voted Democratic for generations, but the Voter Rights Act put an end to that because it basically uh, um, enabled African Americans in the South to register and to vote. Um, and very importantly, um, it required, even though it's a federation and, and these issues are determined in states, it required the approval of the federal justice department for any changes in electoral laws in the South. And so, um, uh, basically, Washington determined these laws, and under the Voting Rights Act, uh, um, Americans, um, African Americans in particular, were enfranchised. So the Democrats risk losing the support of Southern whites. Well, they've lost that support. Yep. That, that electorate is gone. But um, they are hopeful that um, minorities around the U.S. and, of course, liberals around the U.S. will support the Democratic Party. And as I said, the Republican idea is to suppress that vote. Now, incidentally, um, just this year, the Supreme Court, um, in a decision called Shelby, um, decided that um, the Voting Rights Act was 1965, a lot of water under the bridge. There is no further need for federal supervision of the southern states. And this has opened up the gates to even further tactics and uh, of voter suppression. And I can go into some of those in a moment. I mean, I'd love to hear it. Absolutely, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about <laughs> the tools and strategies that are yeah. used in voter suppression? Well, um, you know, there are, there are a number of... of institutions in the U.S. that already suppress the vote. Uh, um, um, one of them is the gerrymander, yep. um, a, a great gift by the, of the United States to the world. Uh, um, and it's been around in the United States for a long time. A Supreme Court decision of only a few weeks ago decided that the issue of political gerrymandering was not justiciable. Therefore, the courts had no say in it. Racial gerrymandering remains justiciable. So we, we have a, an odd okay. situation where you, if you discriminate against all Democratic voters, then you're fine. But if you discriminate against African-American Democratic voters, you may be in breach of the law. And you have to be able to prove that. The, uh, yes. You, you Basically, again, demography and, and uh, um, patterns of residence will determine you know, okay. that sort of result. So the gerrymander is one issue that suppresses the vote. Um, the Electoral College is clearly another issue. Um, the way the Electoral College works today, um, a, an absurd institution that made sense in the 18th century, makes absolutely no sense in the 21st century, um, means that the presidential election is effectively decided in about 10 states, mm. 10 swing states. The other 40 states have no say because um, their votes are already assumed. And, and for example, I can tell you, living in New York, we never see advertising for presidential elections. It's not a terrible thing. No. Uh, <laughs> um, I saw a, um, a comment by a gentleman in Florida, which is one of the swing states, uh, um, saying he wants those terrible treacly Cialis ads back. <laughs> <laughs> I do love to go to the States and watch terrible political advertising, but that's the most obnoxious Australian thing to say. You know, and, and your democracy is, is sport for the rest of us. Yeah. yeah. So if you're in those 40 states, your vote really doesn't matter much. Mm -hmm. And that would be another reason not to vote. And then, you know, the other sort of um, institution the US has that really does suppress the vote um, is uh, the Tuesday voting uh, um, uh, Institution. I mean, really, not, and if it were a public holiday, Tuesday wouldn't be an issue, but it's a working Tuesday. And so they're asking Americans to vote on a working day. Um, and, and that leads to one of the tactics they use in, in suppressing the vote. They make it difficult to vote. I wouldn't vote in the US. Um, you know, you, you've been brought up in, in Australia where, you know, we take for granted so many things about voting, which we, which don't exist in other parts of the world, in particular the US. I don't think I was 20 until I realized, uh, I think I was 20 until I realized that compulsory voting wasn't normal, that Saturday voting wasn't normal, uh, that having a polling booth, the polling booth where I vote now in, in Canberra, I can see another polling booth 
from you know from yeah. where I'm voting. It's incredible. We but we have no concept, I think, uh, internationally of how lucky we are. And and just as the Australian Electoral Commission makes it easy for us to vote, I don't recall ever waiting more than ten or fifteen minutes to vote yep. in Australia. Um, the electoral commissions, and I use the plural very advisedly. This is important. The uh, electoral commissions in the US make it very difficult to vote in some areas, not in others. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the decentralization of electoral administration in the US and also ballot papers? Because I think ballot papers are a really underreported kind of form of voter suppression. Well, um, uh, the US um, is a federation, of course, um, and um, uh, as a federation, um, the um, concept of voting for some reason got devolved to the states rather than uh, to the to the federal government, I which think is there unusual. There is a reason for which, it, though, wasn't uh, it, to avoid um, corruption at, at a sort of centralized level? You know, it was the US is an amalgamation of existing units that had their own pride and their own situation and their own processes. And, and so that really is what shapes the, the current US system. But, you know, other federal countries, you know, India, Brazil, Germany, uh, um, uh, maybe not Switzerland, but nearly all federal countries have a federal electoral commission. And, and that's the norm. The US not only does not run their electoral commissions through the states, they run them through the counties. Which is, I find, just baffling. 9,000 electoral commissions in the US, a recipe for incompetence. And, and let me just say, um, we, when we think of incompetence, we think, oh, well, you know, this will happen in the Ozarks or somewhere. No, Brooklyn's mm. electoral commission is incompetence. It uh, uh, wrongly um, uh, expunged from the electoral rolls about 60,000 voters that shouldn't have been uh, um, written off. So, That's um, huge. That idea of, of um, you know, 9,000 electoral management bodies, I think we can say is worst practice. Oh, absolutely. But does Canada have a fed, uh, centralized certainly electoral does. commission? In fact, in fact, America's two neighbors, the Canadian Electoral Commission and the Mexican Electoral Commission, are both t- two of the leading electoral commissions in the world who do a lot of work internationally teaching other electoral management bodies about all sorts of things, Mexico in particular, about how to get indigenous people to vote. Oh, wow. Because yeah, that's a yeah. real problem in Australia. Yeah. This is just fascinating. I and I know it's easy for us to sit back and we do sit back in Australia and say, America's a basket case. <laughs> Look at us. You know, we're so smug and, and well organized. Can we talk about the ballot papers? Because when, I, say, when right. I show students how to vote in the US, yeah. they're dumbfounded. Yeah. Well, um, uh, most electoral management bodies these days use um, election machines. Yep. Which is a problem um, as well. Which has its own problems. And um, the US... Um, we know in many other areas of American life do not like to invest in infrastructure and many of these machines are a decade or more old. Um, uh, Some provide paper receipts, some do not. There are 9,000 different decisions taken on electoral uh, um, um, uh, voting machines. Now, there was a a law passed by the uh, federal government that tried to bribe the electoral management bodies with money to standardize that situation. That worked to a certain extent, but it did not work fully. And so, you know, um, Jill, there's no one answer to that question of what the ballot paper looks like. It'll look different uh, in different places. But I think... We won't go through the hanging chads problem that we went through in 2000 because Florida's gone to electric machines uh, as well. Okay, Um, which is another problem. So punch, punch paper voting that that we, you know, even the US recognized that that was a problem. From from what it sounds like, there are issues around not only around the strategies that parties are trying to use to kind of disenfranchise voters, but also around just the simple infrastructure and investing in that infrastructure, standardizing it. Is there any way to tackle that that you can see? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, America is a country of rule of law to a certain degree, but a lot of the law is state. Um, so um, it needs a strong federal government, which means a president of one party supported by Congress of that party that has the willingness to impose its will on these issues. Um, I- interestingly enough, Bill Clinton did that uh, um, at one point. He passed the what is known colloquially as the Motor Voter Act, 
which is a really good idea, and that is exactly the same information is collected when you um, get your driver's license as is collected by an electoral commission to register you for to, to vote. And Sounds so, pretty um, smart. The Motor Voter Act says will achieve both ends when people um, get their driver's license, they will automatically be registered to vote. Um, uh, that was a great result that was um, na- nationwide, but the Republicans tacked on a, a little rider to that. They said, you know, okay, if we're going to live with this idea, um, then we need to um, also give the states the power to maintain that's the word that's in the legislation, maintain the voter rolls. For integrity. We're, conservatives here always talk about it, the integrity of the electoral yep. roll. And, and the result has been a massive system of purging of the electoral rolls. Um, um, I think uh, Ohio purged 2 million voters. Um, Pennsylvania, 1 million. Um, there's a, a, a lot of um, uh, voter purging going on and it's done in ways. So firstly, if there's a tiny discrepancy in the voting uh, enrollment information, that's a reason to purge. They send postcards to the address of the voter. If there's no response, that's another reason to purge the the, the, the um, rolls. So um, Unfortunately, the Motor Voter Act, which was a great idea because of this little add-on, has had a nefarious effect. So listeners, as you have heard from Roland and Jill, this is an incredibly difficult and complex issue to address. But what did you make of the discussion, listeners? We're keen to get your thoughts on the topic that we've just discussed with Roland. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum. We're on Twitter or on Facebook where we are Policy Forum Pod. Or you can also, of course, shoot us an email at podcastpolicyforum.net. Today's episode is brought to you in cooperation with the ANU Crawford Leadership Forum, who have generously helped us organize this panel. This year's ANU Crawford Leadership Forum was built around the theme of rebuilding trust in our public institutions and policymaking. Now, how about we get onto the topic of today's podcast? Today, we want to discuss the uh, Pacific and the role the private sector can play in infrastructure. In November last year, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced the establishment of an Australian infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific worth $2 billion. However, in a piece on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the strategist blog, Stephen Nash criticised the initiative, saying, while the initiative is sensible in intention, it essentially does what all Australian governments have done in the, in the Pacific. It treats the region as if the private sector can't or won't assist. It's as if the public sector is the only solution to infrastructure needs in the Pacific. So today we want to ask, is Australia investing effectively into the Pacific and how could governments facilitate private sector investment more effectively? And we really got a great lineup for this topic, don't we, Jill? We absolutely do. And this is going to I think, be even more important and more uh, newsworthy during Scott Morrison's prime ministership too. Today, we've got uh, Frank Yorn, who's the executive director of the Australia Fiji Business Council, the Australia Pacific Islands Business Council, and the Australia Papua New Guinea Business Council. He was previously in DFAT. We've got Sally McCutcheon, who is the executive director and CEO of Impact Investing Australia. And Sally has previously been with Accenture, Leg Masson, Leg Mason Asset Management and SBC Warburg. And finally, Melissa Day, who is the Regional Representative for East Asia and the Pacific International Finance Cooperation. Prior to joining the IFC, Melissa worked for Development Alternatives, uh, the World Bank and Women's World Banking on Microfinance Development. It really is a fantastic lineup. And for this discussion, we will hand over to a fellow podcast host, Paul Vilvo. Paul is an environmental and resource economist here at Crawford School and also a member of the Food, Energy and Environment and Water Network. But for now, let's hear from our panel. Welcome, Frank. Hello, Paul. Um, thanks for that. I'm glad to be here. Welcome, Sally. Hi, Paul. It's great to be here today. And welcome, Melissa. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us today. Now, the Pacific is one of the most highly exposed regions in the world to climate change. Energy access is low uh, and expensive, and there are a range of needs for climate-resilient infrastructure across roads, telecommunications, energy, water, and of course, very importantly, social infrastructure as well. Now, before the recent 
uh, Australian federal election, the government announced uh, the $2 billion Australian infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific. This has been criticised in many, in many quarters. And one notable concern has been that it won't do enough to enable private sector investment. I was wondering if we could start today, uh, perhaps with you, Frank, to have a chat about, do you agree with that assessment? And, and if so, what are the key reasons? Um, thanks, Paul. Look, I think it's important that um, to, to welcome this um, an infrastructure facility as, a, as an opening position um, for the Pacific. I mean, it won't go anywhere near meeting the demands the Pacific has for infrastructure financing, but it's a starting point. Um, and if it's structured, if the infrastructure facility is is structured uh, correctly, it will help particularly Australian business to re-engage uh, in the region in a way that will we hope will be useful for the region and will help to produce good quality uh, infrastructure. Oh, that's great. And Sally, do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? Um, look, I do, Paul. I don't know that it's a short answer to this question, but um, but I think what I'd like to say is that I think any government policy needs to address some of the fundamental gaps in the market. And I think um, if we're going to look at what the three key ones are, one is around um, skills and capacity development and the technical assistance that might be required around some of these infrastructure projects. Another area is access to the right type of capital, which means... Um, you know, whether that's equity or debt and, and also the long, longer term duration of the capital. And I think um, to Frank's point, I think the, the facilities is great in that it is providing uh, another source of capital. Um, but I think one of the issues with the facility is it's very debt and grant focused in terms of the tools that it has. And I think um, there is a significant gap in equity um, in terms of infrastructure projects. And that's the piece that's missing. Great, thank you. And Melissa, do you have anything, any reflections? Well, first, just to agree with Frank, that there's no doubt that the infrastructure needs in the Pacific are immense. I mean, if we consider energy alone, in PNG, just 13% of the population has access to electricity. Solomon Islands, 16%, Vanuatu, 33%. So in just those three countries alone, there's over two US $2 billion in costs to meet the access targets set by government by 2030. So, and if we add the cost of climate change adaption and the annual costs just of coastal adaption and adapting to the rain and temperature changes, you've got anywhere from 400 million to 1.2 billion to, to add. So it's, you know, the needs are there and the, and the injection of, of funds is very welcome. But... There is not a sort of ready-made pipeline of commercial investments out there that IFC, ADB, Impact Investment, EIB, Korean and Chinese Exim have missed, right? So it's really – it comes down to the how. How are we all together going to identify bankable and develop bankable projects in the infrastructure sector across the Pacific? And in terms of identifying those particular projects – is is there a particular advantage for, say, a government-led initiative in terms of Australia uh, trying to develop a financing facility rather than putting injecting the money into, say, a multilateral development bank? Is, is there a reason why that might work in terms of outcomes? Well, I think there are diplomatic reasons why that might be um, beneficial and make sense for Australia. But for in terms of effectiveness of identifying projects, I don't see how th there would be an advantage in the identification. Um, I think the key will be in coordination and in how we share information and, and we – as a, as a kind of group, help to make sure that the public side of, of the equation is used effectively. So an example that I can note is the way in which the Tina River hydropower project was developed in Solomon Islands. So that's, you know, great benefit, 15 megawatts it, uh, of energy that will help take the country from um, fully diesel to 70% renewable Right? So that's a big transformational change. Um, and it wouldn't have happened without Australia in particular um, supporting the process from the beginning. And so I guess that's an example of a, a bilateral support being really important. But they didn't do it alone, right? So IFC was the transaction advisor from the beginning with um, Australia and New Zealand um, 
funding enabling us to, to really be there for 10 years. Um, and then in terms of the financing, it's it's a, a group of different co- concessional and public financing that's going to go into the project. So that's an example of huge infrastructure need that's been met in a commercial way, bringing public funds in, in, a, in an appropriate way. We call that maximizing finance for development. So that, that's what I think they're going to have to, to – what Australia will benefit from pursuing that sort of approach. Paul, uh, if I can just um, add that I think most of the Pacific countries have a sort of a, a, a national infrastructure pipeline and I think it's uh, really important that um, anyone looking to develop infrastructure um, works with the national governments um, and identifies priority projects within their own national um, infrastructure pipeline. One of, one of the, the, the tripwires sometimes is that sometimes uh, there may be political reasons and not economic reasons for some of the items that appear on that national list. And, and I think it's important to for the, for the facility to take account or get advice from people like business as to what, have, what are the projects that have an economic potential rather than ones that necessarily have a political um, outcome for particular politicians. Um, but at least if the government knows what the balance is, they can then make the decision with the full information in front of them. And just to follow up on that, Frank, uh, one of the complementary, uh, I guess, proposals or, or, or policies associated with the establishment of the AIFFP uh, was to change uh, some to reform uh, the type of projects that EFIC, uh, Australia's Export Credit Agency, can fund. Our own uh, Professor Stephen Howes here at the Development Policy Centre uh, has said that uh, perhaps what is needed is not just identifying the direct or indirect benefits to Australia for such funding, but also to identify that there is a direct benefit to the recipient country. Do, do you think that that's the sort of thing that could could help with that? I, I think that's important and I think uh, you know that infra- infrastructure pipeline can help to identify what's important for the country through that process. Uh, you know, Stephen's point is right um, and I suppose it depends on how that new provision in the legislation is actually implemented mm. um, and, and I'd be really surprised if it doesn't include a sort of a national interest test for the recipient country. Okay, that's great. Now, perhaps before we just dive down a little bit further into discussion about private sector investment, Sally, I was wondering if you could just follow up, if you have any reflections on the best way for the Australian government to support infrastructure investment in the Pacific. Um, So my view on that, I I think, is more, you know, to the point around um, the equity piece of the capital. And I'm not sure that the Australian government has the appetite to do this, but um, I think a really good example that we've just seen internationally is what the US has recently done with um, the reorganisation of its own development finance institution in OPIC um, under the BUILD Act, which is very big um, mouthful of better utilisation of investment leading to development. And essentially that um, organisation, it's now a $60 billion organisation and it has a huge array of tools that it can use to actually bring in private sector capital um, towards sustainable development and that includes equity, quasi-equity, enterprise funds which target the social enterprise market and um, SME innovation, um, various um, insurances and also debt. So there's a, a huge remit for that organisation and the tools that it can use. And I think given that it's it's just happened and it's just been revisited, it would be worth um, thinking about how we could actually use some of that work from the US to actually inform Australian policy. Oh, that's great. An existing, uh, I guess, example or, or model of something which could be done. Yeah, and I think there's another really good example that's also come out of Canada, which has been... Um, put into uh, the Export Development Corporation of, of, of Canada. Um, and essentially that's the, the FINDIV. Um, it's, it's essentially also doing development finance in, in three, three key areas which I, which I think are also relevant for the Pacific. One is around green and, and climate, um, very relevant. Another is around sustainable agriculture. And the third is around innovative social enterprise. And that also has um, a tool of equity in it. 
and it's looking at a quite a broad remit um, in terms of its geographical focus. So, again, another interesting example which I think we could draw on. My point really goes to the equity question. Um, and first of all, the Americans have um, certainly expressed an interest in working um, with Australia um, in identifying the, uh, the pipeline projects. I, I had a meeting with the American uh, Commerce Department officials at, in the margins of the ADB annual general meeting last month in Nandy, uh, and, and they're very keen on um, working with Australia uh, and with Australian business on this because uh, they see that Australian business knows the Pacific a lot better generally than uh, than American business. Um, there's a number of um, a number of other ways to um, develop investment in infrastructure which can help to alleviate that sort of debt question. Um, first of all, um, uh, there's an initiative being taken by um, all the Pacific Island superannuation funds which uh, are trying to work up a body called the Pacific Investment Forum. Uh, the Pacific um, uh, superannuation funds and, and some other financial associated financial institutions uh, have a balance sheet of uh, around seventy five million a billion Australian dollars, um, and they want to have broader investment opportunities and particularly in infrastructure. So. That fund is not up and running yet. It's still a work in progress. But uh, when it is up and running, assuming that it reaches that point, you know, that can be an opportunity for the Australian infrastructure facility to partner with uh, Pacific superannuation funds uh, in, uh, in, in developing these projects using money that's already in the Pacific. Um, the, second, uh, the second thing is that there's a lot of um, capital in the Pacific which is locked into state-owned enterprises in airports and power and, um, and water um, and, and most of these are non-productive assets and there's an opportunity, I think, for there to be a different approach by Pacific Island governments to the way they manage the value that's in those state-owned enterprises because many of them have um, good income-producing opportunities, particularly things like airports and, and power companies and and water um, and uh, a sort of PPP approach or some sort of form of joint venture approach with other investors and other partners could turn um, an airport, for example, um, into a, a good asset that doesn't create debt but creates equity. And there are probably financial um, instruments that could be used to help finance that, that people could buy, uh, locals could buy through, in the case of countries that have stock exchanges or other um, securities that are available. So I think there's a really wide range of opportunities that haven't been fully explored. I think, you know, we're just scratching the surface at the moment. Um, and hopefully once the facility gets up and running, it will be nimble enough um, and, and, and flexible enough to be able to explore opportunities like that and that the Pacific governments will respond positively to be able to make their own inputs uh, using their own assets as well. Please, Melissa. I think from a private sector perspective, you hear a lot of consensus be, uh, between us because there are some kind of proven elements to making investments work in difficult markets. And these are probably IFC's most difficult markets, actually, outside of live war, war zones. Um, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And mentioning um, being nimble and flexible. That's number one. You got to be able to um, go with the flow and, but, uh, and, and adjust and have enough room for innovation, right? And that's, that's I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about one example of that that's live in Fiji now. To um, 
the strategic alignment with leaders is absolutely key. The only way Tina River could succeed is that it's something that the government and opposition both came to to want, and that's why it could sur- survive through different governments and um, changing environments in Solomon Islands. Only way T. Barbet Port, something that seemed impossible at the beginning in of the PPP process nine years ago in Timor-Leste. Only reason that becomes an award-winning transaction is that there was absolute strategic alignment and it was demand-driven. And three, relationship and presence. So it's not just excellent relationships, it's excellent relationships and being present. You're there, you're walking um, together through the risks and the difficult decisions and the things that are new. And those three things are absolutely um you know, we, it, it's sort of 101 for the Pacific. And an example of that's live is the Fiji Health um, PPP that IFC is working on with the Fiji government. So this is the first um, PPP hospital in the Pacific. The first time cardiac and cancer treatment will be available in the Pacific. Private investment of up to 200 um, million. And this is possible because of an excellent partnership with the Fiji government and innovation in terms of the revenue model to allow the Fiji government to uh, continue to give service free for all Fijian citizenships. Usually, you know, a private partner doesn't come to a transaction that allows such a, a, a model. Um, and that was about flexibility and long-term perspective. So, yeah, I think you will hear a kind of united voice from the private sector in terms of how to make investments successful going forward. No, that's great. I think I'll just add one more thing, um, given that Melissa brought up the health. We talked about this earlier today, and I think one of the important things to think about in relation to infrastructure, which we talked about, was that it's not just about the infrastructure. It's actually about the service that goes around the infrastructure and the operations and making sure that there's the capacity in the market to deliver. So when you you talk to that health example, I'm sure Melissa can elaborate, you know, it comes back to not just building the hospital, but actually having the staff and the and the operational capability to actually deliver the health outcomes. Yes, absolutely. And that's why process is so important. So the process was focused and and transparent and the goal was to attract some uh, a player who could stay there for I think it's 30 years mm-hmm. and who knew the Pacific and could operate and maintain the the services. Absolutely. On that question of capacity, uh, um, when the Department of Foreign Affairs earlier this year called for submissions on how the uh, infrastructure facility might look, one of the things that we said in our submission was it was really important that um, the contracts that were let for development of infrastructure needed to have a mandatory requirement for building capacity in the local market um, through partnerships with um, local firms. Um, and also in terms of uh, the supply of goods and services um, to the project where that was possible um, because it's important to leave behind some sort of SME capability and not just finish the project and walk away and all you leave is a strip of concrete or whatever it is. You need to leave capacity in the market for ongoing economic sustainability. So we think that capacity and, you know, whether it's staff in hospitals or whether it's in improved building and construction companies and capabilities is really an important part of it. Do you think, is that consistent, uh, leaving that legacy, is that consistent with requiring, say, Australian contractors or Australian indirect benefit to Australian companies? Is it possible to balance those two things? I believe it is. Um, And, uh, you know, I'd like to see Australian companies getting a lot of this work because that would draw them back to work in the Pacific and would sort of enhance the, the other aspects of the bilateral relationship. And there has been some contraction of Australian business interests in the Pacific over the last 10 years um, for various reasons. So this would be a way of drawing Australian companies back in. But equally, New Zealand companies who still work well in the Pacific, New Zealand companies have probably had a, a, a longer-term appetite for the Pacific than Australian companies. And there are a number of New Zealand companies working in the Pacific who are well capable of doing this work. Um, and I think they already work a lot on leaving that sort of legacy behind. We think that the best... Uh Contractor would be the ones who do the the job 
the most effectively and for the best price. And we think that benefits the investors as well as so so Australia, as well as the countries. Mm. So you know, I guess for again for IFC, it comes back to the process being transparent, which benefits Australia, right? Because Australian companies know how to compete and they know mm. how to follow a, a process. So and generally, you'll get a good job. You know, the job you want in your contract. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If I could uh, come back to uh, what you were mentioning before, Melissa, uh, the example from the health sector. Uh, I'm wondering if it's really important in, in terms of uh, investment to have you know, multilateral development banks or, or overseas governments involved in these types of projects in order to deliver development benefits you know, rather than just, say, necessarily revenues. Of course, if you think about what multilateral development banks are, they have member states and the member states have, have signed on to you know, a joint mission. So, you know, that's why I work for IFC because of the very clear mission of creating opportunity for all and also the sort of clarity around around how investment makes sense for developing countries. My background, I started with NGOs in Somalia, you know, sort of um, women's centers and things like this. And what brought me to um, pr private sector development, which I came to through microfinance, was this kind of clarity that there's a clear way to create incentives for all involved if what you're doing is business rather than just, just doing good. If you're doing business to do good, then we all sort of know what the game is. And I, I find that you know, personally in the way that I work, but also in terms of the the business that we're creating in the Pacific, it's it's nice to be in a in a in an organization where the rules are clear. I think, and for me, coming from an impact investing framework, it's exactly the same. It's that notion of you doing good, but you're doing it in a sustainable way that can actually, whereas in an NGO context, it it can you know you're always looking for for donor funds and and philanthropy. When you actually create a business model around something that's doing good, which is effectively what the IFC is doing or supporting, um, then it's a much more sustainable outcome. Yeah, I mean, if um, if business grows, economies grow, and and successful economies then grow into the space that development occupies at the moment. And so, you know, the I guess good good development programs really are working to grow economies, and in that sense, put put an end to the development programs or at least to reduce them because, you know, um, then the companies, be the countries become sustainable economically um, and that leads to social or should lead to social inclusion because they collect taxes, they're able to then provide, you know, the, the health services uh, and the education services and the other services that are necessary which is, you know, how we see um, successful economies around the world working. I think that's really particularly true when you add the capacity overlay mm. and onto the work that, that we're doing here because not only do you leave the economic um, outcomes but you also leave, leave a ho more highly skilled mm. workforce um, that can actually you know, deliver against that. It's a very long-term process yeah. though. Yeah. Yes, but that's the goal. Yeah. Mm. Now, if I could ask the three of you, uh, the three of you it's wish list time, all right? Uh, always the most wonderful time. If you had one recommendation on, on how governments could work more closely with the private sector uh, to boost investment, to make it more effective, uh, what would it be? Could I start with you, Frank? Sure. Look, I, I think one of I think perhaps the the most important thing is something we've been discussing the last two days, which is about trust. And I think uh, um, governments need to trust business, particularly you know major business. Um, and take them into their confidence and work co collaboratively with them um, to develop uh, investment and business. Um, and the whole theme of the last two days really has been about trust in different aspects. And I think that applies very much to to um, working in the Pacific with governments at both ends of the bilateral relationships. Um, uh, and uh, often in the Pacific, um, we find that... Um, it's a bit of a challenge for business to engage with government. Um, um, 
I'm not quite sure what the reason is. You can speculate on a whole lot of reasons, but uh, it works best if there is collaboration. I mean, a good example of that trust and collaboration is in Solomon Islands, where the Solomon Islands Chamber of Commerce and Industry um, has an MOU with the Solomon Island government, which was formed um, a couple of prime ministers ago, but the, the prime minister who did that MOU is now back as prime minister. Um, but that identifies a whole range of uh, policy issues which need to be addressed by Solomon Islands government um, to facilitate business and economic growth and investment. Uh, and that's it's a structure. It, it, it's slow, but at least it's a structure where they have a dialogue with each other and, and an element of trust develops. Uh, in Australia, um, uh, you know, um, business has worked with um, government um, a lot in the past. Um, I think that uh, since the step up, um, the Australian government's focus has been very much on um, security and strategic issues and development issues um, and uh Business hasn't quite been included yet in that. I put that down to the sort of current political or the political environment as it's been for the last six months, but I think we've come out of the end of that now with the election out of the way. Um, and also I think at the official level, um, uh, you know, the, in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, they've had a big expansion of staff and of their responsibility and I think they're still betting that down. Um, but um, we're looking forward to, you know, continuing our dialogue with uh, DFAT and, and, and getting trust from them that they should include business in all of these uh, initiatives. Oh, that sounds great. Trust, a really important starting point. And Sally, what are your so, thoughts? So for me, if the policy objective is about attracting private capital and enabling the flow of private mm -hmm. capital in the Pacific, it's it's hard to answer that with one policy. But I think what I would say is that really the role of government really needs to be in terms of its policy suite and the policy toolbox is is around enabling that, that flow and that goes to um, both supporting... Um, existing intermediaries in the market, like like the IFC, um, but also you know questioning, you know it doesn't necessarily have to be with its own capital. I think where the government should use capital is where there's no one else that can actually supply the capital. So it, it really is a, a means of enabling private investment as opposed to crowding out private investment. And I think that should be the real focus of policy. Oh, great, Crowd, crowding crowding in investment rather than exactly, crowding out. Exactly, exactly. That's great. And Melissa. I think it's a really good moment for um, investors with governments, and I think so. And and I think governments' ears are open, right? And we're invited into the room more, um, and the trust is at a, at a higher level than it has been. So my wish would be more for investors to come to the table um, and to consider opportunities in these markets across the Pacific that they haven't considered before. I think that's the real. Um, aspiration going forward in the next five years and and that th it is quite urgent with the um, damage and threat of of climate change. This is a, a region that needs innovation and need that only the private sector really can bring so my wish goes that way. That's fantastic. And you know what we're not quite done with wishes yet <laughs> uh, because uh, now, I think the ADB said that the Asian Development Bank said that around $3 billion worth or estimated $3 billion worth of investment is required in, in the Pacific over – Per year. Per year. Per year, per year. Per year yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I am a recently finished PhD student or almost finishing and it turns out that I have $9 billion to give you each every year or maybe just $3 billion and you get to have a vote on, on how you're going to um, apportion it. So if I could start with you, Melissa, I've given you $3 billion per year. How are you planning to use each one of those $1 billion, $1 billion each to three areas in terms of maybe it's water, maybe it's health, maybe it's infrastructure around sea level rise? Oh, goodness what gracious. Are your am, I, am I doing it commercially? Um, <laughs> am I investing commercially? Because yeah, that really makes a difference, let's, right? Let's, let's say uh, you're investing commercially. Innovation, innovation, climate change, climate change. <laughs> climate change. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's got to be around um, innovative solutions to help 
all of us deal with what's coming at us. So um, I just saw the movie 2040, which I thought was fantastic. And in that, there was a um, professor talking about seaweed and um, mid-ocean seaweed farms that are happening now in in, um, the Philippines and um, led by a group in Tasmania uh, together with the climate uh, foundation and for me, if I if if I had access, I would even ramp up the innovation more than investors are ready to take on now, and I would um, make those leaps and probably have a lot of seaweed that needs to be purchased by someone. Fantastic, a seaweed fund. <laughs> yes, I like it. And and Sally, what are you going to do with your I would three do million lots, dollars? Lots of different things. Um, I would. I would look at setting up um, different fund models. So I think I'd start with a social enterprise fund that helped to um, fund some of the social enterprises and the, some of the social innovation that's coming through from from smaller businesses in the Pacific Islands. And then the next thing I'd do is launch a fund of funds, which would help to drive intermediation and product development um, from different actors to try and build up that piece of the market. And then I'd go for the big climate change infrastructure hit. <laughs> Excellent. And last but not least, we have Frank. I feel like I'm on sale of the century. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but your, your funding's not enough. <laughs> oh, right, of course. But, um, but I mean, uh, I think I would, I would be focused partly on education because education leads to innovation. Um, I would be looking at, uh, at, at infrastructure, in, particularly in telecommunications uh, and power, um, because if you're looking at, inf- at innovation, you, you, you're in part looking at, um, uh, at um, industries, modern industries that require communications and power to operate. Um, uh, you know, manufacturing, for example, you know, is difficult because of time and distance in these markets. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, they're the sort of things that I think I would be focusing on. But education is really important because uh, teaching teaching kids um, to think uh, is is a, the first step in teaching them to innovate. And it doesn't take that long once once you start, right? In all these processes, we say, you know, long-term, long-term. But I was in Timor-Leste in the uh, early part, of, so 2002, and the leaps that have been made since, since um, that very catastrophic post-conflict beginning are amazing. And I think, yeah, I think, okay, so can, can I put a billion toward education too? <laughs> sure, you can revive it. No education worries. outcomes fund. I'd just like to, um, to pick, go back a, a quick step in our discussion. Um, I think uh, earlier this morning uh, in a discussion, uh, Melissa made the point that the Pacific Sea is a um, commercial wasteland by someone that you'd been talking to. Um, I think it's really important to change the language about uh, dealing with the Pacific. Um, we recently, um, well, two months ago now, we ran a, a Pacific breakfast update in Melbourne, which we called Doing Business in the Pacific, an Arc of Opportunity. And I think too often the Pacific is seen negatively, um, more as an arc of instability. Uh, we want to change the language and yep. talk about it being an arc of opportunity. Uh, and, and if we can start using that language, um, then we can start to attract people, investors, to think in a different way about partnering in these sorts of investments that we're talking about, as long as there's a return in there. Obviously, an investor has to, has to get a return. That's why you know the, the, um, these projects need to be structured in a way that does produce that return in some way. And, and I think, ways. yeah, and, yeah. And, and just to clarify, I don't think it's a wasteland. No, no, I wasn't but... <laughs> suggesting that. Uh, I think you were quoting, you were quoting somebody else, and I hope I made that, that clear. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the best way to change the conversation is by succeeding. So when we have these, these, um, you know, Tina River, when it closes in at the end of this year, T. Barbe Port in Timor Leste, when, when we have the Fiji Health Project up and running, we need to talk about them and we all need to get behind all, all of, you know, all the successes. Yeah, celebrate the successes. Celebrate the successes and that will change the way in which the place is, is talked about. That's one of the things that the, that the, um, government in Solomon Islands has said to IFC, we want to change what comes up on the internet when you look for Solomon Islands. And, you know, we, we as investors have the ability to influence that. 
And and one of the things that we do as business as as three business councils working across the Pacific is that we run annual business and investment forums on all the Melanesian countries every year and they alternate between Australia and the overseas jurisdiction. And we love to see these sorts of stories which we can put out there for people to be aware of. Here's a success story, you know, in Fiji in the health sector. Here's a success story in Solomon Islands uh, in the power sector. Um, because if you talk about these things, as Melissa says, you can start to change the dialogue. And so that we see that as part of our mandate of promoting trade and investment by trying to give people opportunities to talk about uh, success stories. Well, excellent. I think that's uh, unfortunately we've run out of time. I think that's a great note to, to end on, arc of opportunity and, uh, and talking about success stories. Uh, so I'd like to thank you all. Thank you, Frank and, and Sally and, and Melissa for joining us today. Now, listeners, please don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast where we'll go over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hear from Mark Kenny about his Democracy Sausage podcast. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Thank you so much, Sally, Frank, and Melissa for joining our discussion. And we really want to know what you think of it, listeners. So please keep sending us your feedback, questions, and comments. You can do that on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, on our Facebook group, which is always the best way to reach us, Policy Forum Pod, or by email, podcast at policyforum.net. Because each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions and respond to what you've sent to us. And we're lucky enough to still have Roland with us, and Jill, of course. And we're going to start with an article, Indigenous Policy Must Be an Indigenous Hands by Justin McCall. In this article, Justin writes that time will tell if Minister White can meet the expectations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and create the space for us to start shaping Indigenous policy. But so long as Indigenous policy is focused on Indigenous voices, the future holds promise. We had a comment by M at M underscore academic and on Twitter, and he writes, Australian Indigenous peoples would be well served by our country if students in every high school were required to attend comprehensive and well-crafted Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander language lessons and cultural studies for a full year rather than for a foreign language. Roland, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, um, a similar policy has worked wonders in New Zealand. Um, where the knowledge of Maori um, language is is much more widespread and where its use has become much more public. Um, I think it might be more difficult to achieve that outcome in Australia because of the variety of languages. But if I may, while we're on this topic, um, I couldn't agree more with the two former Chief Justices uh, um, who have both come out and said um, that there is no constitutional problem with giving Aboriginal people giving our First Nations a voice in some sort of parliamentary process. Uh, um, and um, clearly that needs to be the, the next step that is taken. And it's going to be fascinating because it seems like Scott Morrison really doesn't want it and Ken Wyatt has shown his commitment to it. It's, it's unfortunate that this issue was dragged into the culture wars. It should have been, you know, quarantined from the culture wars, but it's been dragged into the culture wars and now the cultural warriors will want to um, use it as fodder for their, you know, other ideas. But um, uh, clearly our Indigenous people want to have a voice. They should be given a voice. So definitely a case of watch the space. Hopefully we'll find a solution to that very soon. Then the second comment is on the podcast, Fixing the National Disability Insurance Scheme with Claire Moore, Gemma Carey and Jenny Macklin. On this Policy Forum pod, we take a look at the future of the National Disability Insurance Scheme and what we'll take to fix the program. 
We had a comment by Dave Smith on Facebook, and he wrote, To fix the NDIS, more sheltered workshops need to pay the wages of the people they employ. These businesses need to offer proper wages so those that work benefit from proper wages. Many of these organizations are only a social outing for the people that they employ, in inverted commas. More effort needs to go into moving some of these disabled people into proper jobs. Jill? What are your thoughts? Uh, the NDIS sounds absolutely diabolical. Everyone I know who is either a recipient or works in um, the administration or the provision of disability services uh, speaks awfully about it. Um, I, I get the feeling it's it's much more fundamental um, than Dave's suggestion, to be honest, that whatever happens, it needs a wholesale fix. And I think what's been really interesting politically is that Bill Shorten, despite going uh, to well, notionally the backbench, but he stayed involved in in the NDIS because he's uh, obviously committed to seeing it through, and he, as much as anyone, I'm sure, understands what a, a incredibly wicked challenge it is. So a big thank you to Dave Smith and M Academic for sending us your suggestions and your comments, and also a reminder to keep sending them in. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, or drop us a line at podcast at policyforum.net. At this stage of the podcast, we also usually introduce some of our new members. It's a very long list, and please, listeners, bear with me while I'll try my best to pronounce your names, and I'm do sincerely apologize if I butcher any one of those. So I'd like to welcome to our podcast gang, James Rumble, Zesty Diana Adzel, Brianna Rose Bailey, Mahilani Delaney, Vern Weitzel, Dan- Daniel Hughes, Thomas Kinnear, Pradi Paria, Ashmita Canal, Hash Tucker, Elsie Leclerc, Lily Truman, Julia Nesterova, Christine Abbott, Hidroto Ra- Randa, Holly Jang, Jacinta Felton and Backen. Thank you so much for joining us. And as you, our members will know, we keep a list of our favorite podcasts on our uh, Policy Forum podcast group in the files there. And since we've got Roland here with us, do you have any podcasts that you listen to at the moment? I, I do listen to um, New York Public Radio and its podcasts quite a lot. Um, it's very focused on American politics, of course, but as I live in New York City, that has to be my focus too. Of course. And we, we actually have a few uh, American-focused podcasts uh, on our list then. I'm sure that we, if we add that, there will be people who don't, would be turning into that. Now, I'd like to have a look at some of your suggestions that you've made for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We have one by Michelle Wyatt. She wrote, Hi, Policy Forum Pod. Have you done an episode on prisons and the justice system? If not, it might be worth considering with recent news over uh, of overcrowding. Jill, any thoughts on that? Uh, I was just thinking that the I know the best person in around who would uh, be, I think, willing to talk on this, Jason Payne from our criminology school. Oh, We've yes. had him in before to talk about pill testing. That's um, right. But that's a great idea. No, I, I completely agree. I think that's one of the things that we haven't really dug into. And I think with the with the news of overcrowding, particularly in Victoria, it would be an interesting thing to talk about. And then we also got a comment from Anna Greta Hunter, and she suggested achieving policy change in a post-truth world. Maybe individual local action should be the focus. My recent thoughts, anyone else tracking the hashtag climate emergency declaration process in Wagga Wagga, one of the most interesting climate stories in ages. Roland, what's your view on climate emergencies? Well, we're in the middle of one um, and uh, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction and um, it's it's terrifying that we have governments all over the world who've simply refused to accept that reality um, and are trying to talk their way out of it as if that will have any effect in, um, in, in the world. Um, um, I think the pendulum will change We'll swing very soon on that issue. Um, publics will come to understand that we have an emergency. When half of Miami City is underwater, they will certainly realize that. Mm. Um, the the tragic part is that um, it'll be very late mm. at that stage. If we had taken action 20 years ago, we would have been in a much be- better position. If we wait another 20 years, we'll be in a terrible position. You're right. People need to take this very seriously. Jill, your thoughts on that? Well, younger people are. And mm. so I think my answer to a lot of things is really grim and it's that 
older generations will die out and people who've grown up knowing this, uh, living this climate emergency will be much more likely to take action. Plus, I think it's happening at the local level, which is the point that Anna Greta makes, and I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can see it particularly all over Europe, cities declaring climate emergencies and a lot of protests from the really from the bottom up, which has changed quite a lot. I think in Australia it's going to come from the farmers and the mm. agricultural sector. And l- let me put a word in for the corporate world here and put the oil companies aside, obviously. <laughs> um, but the corporate world um, generally tends to look at the next 20 years or so in terms of profitability. And um, many corporations see that as their number one priority. Mm. And I think we're going to see a lot more action in terms of products and um, ideas coming from the corporate world, which is the key to generating the solutions to this problem. Um, um, What we should be doing from a policy perspective is encouraging that process through the tax system and other methods that's not happening. But even without government intervention, without government support, I think a lot of the corporate world will be working on ways to uh, um, make the planet habitable and their profits continue. That's a very hopeful note to end this section on. Thank you so much, Michelle and Anna Greta, for sending us your suggestions. And we're really keen to get your thoughts on the topics that you'd like to see us cover on the podcast. So just jump on to the Facebook group and let us know or reach out to us on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum. Also, a quick reminder to our new members that we are still giving away our unique Got 99 policy problems for the Brew Ain't One mugs. There are two ways to get one. Number one, you can suggest to us via the Facebook group group a topic for the pod, just as Anna Greta and Michelle just did. And if we later make that into an episode of Policy Forum Pod, you will get one of those marks. Or number two, have your comments and suggestions read out on the pod, and that's either Policy Forum Pod or Democracy Sausage. Please remind us when we've actually discussed one of your comments and questions by leaving us a comment under the respective post. And once you get up to five, we'll be more than happy to send you one of those mugs. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. That will only take you 30 seconds. Just find that fifth star and it'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. This episode has been produced by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production of Martin Pears, extra writing by Lydia Kim and editing by Branko Cvetjevic. We'll be back next week with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. And from me, Jill, thanks for listening. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>